Today's teaching text comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to, proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Consider with me for a moment everything we see around us every day. The world and all its natural beauty. Where did it come from? Did life spring forth at random? Is all that exists the result of some meaningless cosmic accident? Or do our hearts long for purpose because somehow innately we know that there's a reason to existence? Many of us believe that not only this world, but the vast expanse of the universe is the creative product of a being who is without beginning or end. An immortal, unchanging person, Aristotle referred to as the unmoved mover. To make it more personal, your own life was not your idea. Imagine for a moment the world one year before your birth. World events were unfolding in all their complexity. History was churning forward as it had been for millennia. The world was literally filled with people living every kind of story imaginable. Songs were being written in an attempt to get at the fullness of life in this world, so brimming with potential, but also with pain. But some mysterious, all-powerful, author of life type person looked around and said, someone's missing. That being with the surge of inspiration known only to a great artist brought forth the creative work that is you. Before any other created being ever had a thought of you, this invisible God knit you together in your mother's womb. And one day, your life began as the creative product of the maker of heaven and earth. How can such a God be known? One who has no beginning or end, who's limited neither by time or space, whose power and glory are beyond imagination. Is one so transcendent even knowable to us? In another letter, the same Apostle Paul who wrote the passage we just heard described him as God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. The most important question we consider as human beings is, why am I here? 
and we help each other along in that to be sure. But there's a sense in which only one person knows the complete answer to that question. It's your creator. What can we actually know of him? If you did a survey on the street asking people to describe God, you'd get a great variety of different answers. A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In fact, we know that one of the most common causes of breakdown in any relationship is when we project an image onto the other person that's different from who they truly are. That has gotten me into trouble more than a time or two. It's, it's hard for me to explain to you just how important Kentucky basketball is to my family. <laughs> my, um, my grandfather listened to every game on the radio his entire life, and he kept score by hand, meaning he had a notebook on which he recorded every point scored, every rebound, every assist, every foul committed, as if somebody was gonna come and ask him for this information. It's like, you know they've got somebody at the arena doing that, right, Pa? But my dad, he, um, he saved his money year after year, and often instead of going on a different vacation, uh, he would take my brothers and I to the SEC tournament to see the Kentucky basketball team in person. So you can imagine my distress when in 2009, the program was at its lowest point that it had been at since I'd been old enough to follow the team. We fired our coach and we hired one of the, the stars in the college basketball world, a man named John Calipari. And uh, it's 2009, but I learned when he became our coach that Coach Cal, as he's called, already had a Twitter account with well over a million followers. So there were no other like, major coaches that even had an account at that time. And all of a sudden, we had this, this new sort of window through which to get to know this person who had just become a very important person in the lives of everyone in my family. And so, <laughs> if you follow college basketball at all, you know that Coach Cal is, he's a bit of a polarizing figure in the sport. Um, some laud him, others are skeptical of his methods, some even mistakenly believe him to be a cheater, but, <laughs> but I, was, I was excited to, uh, to get to know him as he was now our coach, and so uh, as we followed him that, that spring, uh, his sort of player's first philosophy came into focus, this simple notion that like this program exists to create an opportunity for these kids to come and chase their dreams rather than these kids were gonna use to build the program. So that was, that was appealing, um, but even more appealing was the really central role that his faith seemed to play in his life. A lot of what he shared uh, was about going uh, to church and books he was reading and uh, people that were sick in the hospital uh, who he was visiting and who he was trying to rally people to pray for and this sort of thing. So I fell in love. I thought, this is the perfect man to lead uh, Kentucky basketball. And so uh, it's around that time that um, my brother, Tyler, he was still finishing up Bible college in Chicago, but he was here uh, for the summer that year actually to intern with Caleb and the team uh, that was getting ready to plant this church. And so 
uh, one night, Tyler's over at my place, and uh, Coach Cal sends a tweet. And he was in New York for a day or two, and he said how excited he was to attend Mass at St. Patrick's the next day. And so Tyler and I started talking, and we thought, like, why don't we just go by and see if, <laughs> see if we can catch Coach, like, on the way out and just, you know, say hello. And um, honestly, the way I imagined this interaction going was that we would say, hey, you know, like, we're a couple of Kentucky boys. Like, obviously, we love the team, but we also share your love for Jesus. We're here in New York, like, planting churches. And um, so we went. We went that morning, and... Um, there are a number of different masses throughout the morning, so we stayed for an hour or so. No sign of coach, and uh, Tyler had to, to travel out to Brooklyn for the day, and I went, I worked in an office on Fifth Avenue at that time, so I just walked down to work. And then lunchtime rolled around. I was still feeling a little, you know, unfulfilled, and um, <laughs> I, knew there was a, I knew there was a lunchtime mass. I didn't have any lunch plans that day, and so I thought... I'm just going to give it one more shot. I'll just walk back up the street and see what happens. And um, sure enough, I was out there on the street when, when Coach emerged from the cathedral. And he's walking down the steps. And um, I'm, I'm ready. You know, like I know what I want to communicate. And um, like we're going to begin a relationship, right? But he, <laughs> he notices me while, while I'm, you know, he's still a little ways off. And uh, well, it went something like this. He said, hey, hey, how you doing? Yeah, and just kept going and got into his car. And I blurted out just, you know, whatever I could think to say in the moment. It wasn't what I had planned, and that was, that was kind of that. And so I thought, well, that was, you know, not what I expected. It actually felt a little weirder in the moment than it did in my mind, but whatever. I just moved on, and a uh, number of months later, I was in the airport, and I stepped into one of those newsstands, and I noticed on the rack there was a Sports Illustrated that had my team on the cover. And it was like right at the beginning of the season, we had gone from like this huge disappointment to we were gonna be one of the contenders that year. And so, of course, I bought the magazine and I was excited to read it on the plane. And so I got settled into my seat and um, open up, and sure enough, it's this piece about you know how Coach Cal has has become the leader of this most storied program in, in college basketball history and what the response has been. So it said, the response among Kentucky fans whose team hasn't reached the NCAA tournament's second weekend since 2005 has been seismic. Wildcats backers filled nearly 500 tents, camping out for as many as three days just to snag tickets for the first practice, which sold out 24,000 seat Rupp Arena. On June 2nd, the night before Calipari was to leave for a week-long trip to China, a post on his Twitter page said he planned to attend Mass the next day at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. Usually Calipari goes to Mass early in the morning, but this time he arrived at noon. On his way out afterward, a man in a Kentucky shirt stopped him. <laughs> I just wanted to wish you well in China, he told the coach. Calipari was flabbergasted and a little concerned. How did he know I was coming at noon, he asked. He had to have waited there all morning. <laughs> and I quote, 
that's when I had to remind everybody that I have a huge dog in our backyard. I felt like every other passenger on that plane read those sentences over my shoulder and knew it was me. I was, I was mortified. I, <clears throat> I had imagined that Coach was somebody with, with whom I had these shared affinities and I would have a natural, personal connection with. Maybe we'd have a Bible study right there outside St. Patrick's or... He'd say, interesting, tell me more about church planting. I imagine he'd be receptive to my surprising him in perhaps the most private moment of his day. (laughs) The truth was that he was a public figure with an insanely full schedule who simply didn't have the capacity to be curious about potential connections with the creepy guy waiting for him outside (laughs) church. I had an image of this man that was quite different from the reality of him, and the outcome was us missing one another to a painful degree. Now, I want you to know I've since given up stalking coaches. I've completely written it off. Um, That's a lighthearted, if deeply, deeply embarrassing example, but the truth is this happens all the time in our relationships with friends, with our spouses, on and on and on. Our adeptness at acquiring a false conception of someone else indicates that it's also easy for us to have our image of God skewed, and that can wreak havoc on our relationship. A not-so-lighthearted reality is some of you have approached God expecting one thing, and your experience has been something different. So again, as Tozer said, this question of who we imagine God to be is of tremendous importance. That's why it's so significant that our passage begins by referring to Jesus as the image of this invisible God. Read this with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So the first thing this means for us is that in Jesus, we discover who God is. Now, Paul is using this beautiful, poetic language, but let's not lose sight of how radical this statement was. How could claims of this magnitude be made about a man who had died little more than 30 years before and who was remembered as a personal friend by men and women still living when this letter was written? Jesus was a poor carpenter from a forgotten corner of the empire who had been unceremoniously executed. And Paul is claiming that he is the son of God, that he was God's agent in creation. The beginning of John's gospel echoes the same. Now there's some debate over the meaning 
of Jesus being referred to as the firstborn over all creation, it implies priority in time, but what it cannot mean is that Jesus was the first being created or born. In the Old Testament, this title, firstborn, expresses status. The commonly held principle, often referred to as the law of primogenitor, meant that the firstborn was equal with the father. It goes on to say that all the fullness of God dwells in him. So the meaning here is that God the Son is equal in power and dignity with God the Father. He too is beginningless. And as a member of the triune God, he was active in the creation of the world. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, any representation of such a complex reality is going to have its limitations. But this diagram is just intended to illustrate that there are seen and unseen realities in our world. God creates men and women also intended to bear his image and have a share in his loving rule. While our capacity to rightly image God and his world was corrupted through the fall, Jesus remains the one person who perfectly embodies him. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In John 14, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In the opening lines of Hebrews, we read, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. The fullness of God's character and purpose are expressed in him. Picking up in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the next thing reflected here is that in Jesus, we see how God uses his power. This poem lifts up Jesus as preeminent in creation and here as the head of the church, that in everything he might have the supremacy. Supremacy is a, it's a comic book word. It's not a word that we use a lot anymore, but it simply means he's all-powerful, worthy of worship, reverence, and awe. Not merely one selection on a buffet of spiritual options. Jesus is the only one truly worthy of power and devotion. The metaphor head designates him as both supreme over the church and also as the source of her life. But alongside this language of power is that of making peace. The grim reference to Jesus' blood and his cross bring us down from the lofty heights of preeminence and fullness to the gruesome depths of human pain and suffering. Blood refers to death by violence. 
the cross to humiliation and shame. The head of the church is the one who was shamefully crucified. This reveals that the supreme one's ultimate purpose is not to judge or destroy, but to rescue, to renew, to make peace. N.T. Wright sums it up this way. It's as though all the enmity, all the hostility that was keeping humans and God shut off from each other did its worst to Jesus on the cross. Jesus was and is the place where true God and true humanity meet. He absorbs all the evil, all the brokenness of our world to offer us forgiveness. The image of God enters the plane of human experience in order to reconcile heaven and earth through means of his humiliating death. The more we look at Jesus, the more we realize that the true God is the God of utter self-giving love. The beginningless God of creation became flesh, became dead. Another word from N.T. Wright. Jesus Christ is the one through whom and for whom the whole creation was made in the first place. When the lavish and generous beauty of the world makes you catch your breath, remember that it's like that because of Jesus. But it's also full of ugliness and evil, summed up in death itself. That wasn't the original intention. And the living God has now acted to heal the world of the wickedness and corruption which have so radically infected it. He has done so through the same one through whom it was made in the first place. The Jesus through whom the world was made is the same Jesus through whom the world has now been redeemed. He's the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. The sequence in him, through him, and the literal translation is to him in verse 16 is repeated again in verses 19 and 20. Everything was made by and for Jesus. Everything holds together in Jesus. Everything will be reconciled by Jesus. The everything that is reconciled is the same everything that was made. The scope of redemption is the same as the scope of creation. The creator and the redeemer are one and the same. Things in heaven, things on earth, all things will be reconciled by Jesus and by his cross. He's God's agent in the whole range of his purposes for humanity. From the original creation of the world to the redemption at history's midpoint, and on to the new creation where the renewal and the reconciliation of all things will be complete. But Jesus' resurrection is the first taste of that new creation. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. There is not in Scripture the faintest suggestion that the resurrection was new evidence for something that in fact had always been happening. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation, a chapter in cosmic history has opened. 
Nobody had ever gone down into death before and come out clean on the other side. God's new creation had begun. Jesus had trampled over death by death. He is the pioneer of life, the blueprint for the new humanity. He inaugurates the reconciliation and renewal of all things in heaven and on earth. And for this reason, in Jesus, we have a joyful hope. We have a joyful hope. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that was proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Before Jesus, our status was that of alienation from God, from our creator. Again, uh, these diagrams are, are imperfect. It's not that heaven and earth are these two distinct spheres, as some imagine. The broken world is not to be escaped in favor of some disembodied existence on a spiritual plane, but just to illustrate this relational alienation between us and God, God and his creation. And throughout history, we've seen that no human effort is capable of bridging the gap. So instead, heaven invades earth in the person of Jesus who reconciles all things. He left the security of heaven and made himself vulnerable to the brokenness of the world in order to rescue us. Through his loving sacrifice and his victory over sin and death, we are restored. Those who trust in him get to experience something of heaven, and, heaven on earth the rule and reign of this God of love here and now. The implications for those who trust in this Jesus are incredible. Once we were alienated from God, enemies in our minds, but now we have been reconciled to God. He calls us his friends. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves our sin, shame, our insecurity, they've all been placed on Jesus. And in him, we emerge spotless, free from accusation. In Christ, we can stand confidently before God, knowing we are dearly loved. The imagery of being without blemish comes from the sacrificial code. Animals offered in sacrifice to God had to be unblemished. And when a man offered an animal, he laid his hand on it in order to identify himself with his offering and also to express an aspiration to be himself holy and unblemished. And Colossians tells us that this aspiration has become a reality through Jesus. Through his sacrifice, the one who knew no sin, we have become the righteousness of God. Now, there's some law court imagery here, and this is certainly not the only image or metaphor through which to understand the victory won by Jesus on our behalf, but it is a helpful one, especially when we're talking about shame. When we're presented before the judgment seat of God, 
This passage tells us no accusation will be raised against us. Tim Keller said, he's not just feeling mercy. Jesus Christ has paid the debt. Reconciliation is a legal thing. For God not to forgive you for sin would mean God would be getting two payments. The very justice of God demands that you stay free from accusation, that you never be liable to condemnation in any way. That's why 1 John 1.8 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For God not to forgive a Christian would be unjust. We who were offenders have been set right with God through the merit of Jesus. We who were hostile have become his friends. We are holy in his sight, beautiful, pleasing, free from accusation. Breathe that in for a moment. Allow the love of God as expressed in Jesus to well up in your heart. So how do we respond to this? The first and most appropriate response is worship. Paul isn't just laying out what theologians call Christology in a cold, academic way here. He's giving thanks as he writes. He's worshiping in a prison cell. And he's trying to draw the Colossians into worship of this Jesus. He knows there would be nothing more helpful for them or honoring to God than to see, appreciate, and be devoted to the fullness of who Jesus is. There's a reason this poem comes right after Paul's prayer that the Colossians will learn how to be grateful to God. The more we look at Jesus, the more our image of God is anchored in his self-giving love. That's why our daily spiritual practice as a church this fall is to spend time with Jesus in the Gospels. When you realize Jesus reveals who God is, gratitude is the first and most appropriate reaction. The second response is one of surrender. If we believe Jesus reigns over all things, reconciles all things, then every aspect of our lives should come under his rule. Can we trust the God who left the security of heaven to come and rescue us? Can you surrender your life to him? Trust and obey him as Lord. And finally, we can join in the reconciliation. This letter beautifully articulates the way the cross of Jesus enables the vertical reconciliation between us and God. Paul's letter to the Ephesians echoes the same, but then goes on to describe how it also enables uh, our reconciliation between one another. These words come come from Ephesians chapter two. Therefore, remember that formerly you you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, we see those words again, but now, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one 
and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The remarkable thing is this actually took place in the early church. It's hard to explain how radical the notion was in the social structures of the time, but Jesus' followers actually loved one another as sisters and brothers, regardless of their heritage or their station in life. One of the people who carried this letter back to Colossae was the slave Onesimus, who Paul refers to later in the letter as our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. He also sends with it another letter to Philemon, who had been the slave's master, asking him to receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as a brother. So we see that under Jesus, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but are united as one temple, one body, one family. In our ever-increasingly polarized and divided culture, what would it look like for us to be ambassadors of reconciliation? To love one another and our neighbors sincerely without regard to all the differences that cause sharp cultural divides all around us. As followers of Jesus, we experience personal reconciliation to God as an accomplished fact, but we still await the cosmic reconciliation of all things, and God invites us to join him in that work in the meantime. The passage ends by saying this gospel is to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven. So our exhale practice as a community this fall is to share this gospel hope we've received. To share that God loves us this much, that knowing Jesus is true life. So I challenge us to pray for and be expectant for an opportunity to share Jesus, to invite someone to Alpha, to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. Would you stand with me? In just a moment, we're going to respond. We'll sing, we'll pray. Those of us who follow Jesus will come to this table, we'll eat and drink and be nourished by this meal of love. We'll remember that our God is the one who uses his power to set us free. But before we do that, there's this moment in the Gospels where Jesus' followers come to him and they say, Jesus, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus looks at them and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And so I pose that question to each of us here today. Who do you say that he is? Perhaps some of us have never truly settled that question in our own hearts. Maybe today is the day you're ready to receive this love, to say, God, thank you for loving me in Jesus. I want his death to count for me. I want to know this life with you. If that's your heart, I invite you to just pray that. Just say that to God right where you are. Or in a few minutes, when we all start moving forward, I'll be down the front here. There'll be others down here. We would love to pray with you. Some of us may simply need to put Jesus back on the throne of our hearts to confess that there have been places where we've not allowed him to be Lord and to surrender all of our lives once again to his loving reign. One way we all will have the opportunity to respond is to worship, to join with Paul in that prison cell with the saints down through history. You know, all across the world today, people are gathering from every tribe and every tongue to worship this Jesus. We do it on Sundays because it's resurrection day. It's the day the stone was rolled away that door that had forever been locked was forced open and the pioneer of life walks out, invites us to walk out with him. The same man who grew up in Galilee is seated on heaven's throne and all around him, the heavenly hosts continually declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And today, in this middle school, we get to add our voices. Jesus, there is none like you. You're the Lord of creation. You're the hinge of history. You're the hope of the world. The more we see you, the more we love you. So come, Holy Spirit, Reveal Jesus anew in our hearts. And may our praise rise and honor you. There is none more worthy. Amen.